and welcome to Circumstantial Failures. My name is Matthew and I'm your host and as you may know with this podcast we speak with a whole range of fantastic guests who have been very kind enough to join me and talk about some of the setbacks that they've experienced in life, some of the challenges that they've had and why some of those problems that they may have encountered weren't necessarily to do with any sort of personal shortcomings but possibly more to do with the uh, the surrounding circumstances uh, that, that they were in at that time. Um, I'm hugely privileged to be joined today by Clint Arthur. Clint has written over 20, 25 best-selling books, including his Pulitzer Prize-nominated book, Wisdom of the Men. Um, as a slight spoiler, the men was a group of Clint's associates and friends who he helped organise and where they would share their problems and advice. So I'm keen to emphasise that this is very much a book for women as well as men. Within the book, Clint talks about his extraordinary life. He talks about the stories of the people he has met and some of the things that they taught him, including Mike Tyson, Mick Jagger, Simon Cowell, George Clooney, Andy Warhol, and no less than five presidents of the American of the United States. Um, and if you have any doubt about his stories, just ask him and he will happily share all the pictures that he has of almost all the people that he will talk about. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Clint. Hey, it sounds like you actually have listened or read the book. I don't know. The... <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah, it's an incredible book. It really, really Did you is. listen to it or did you read it? So... Uh, both. I, I don't have very great eyesight. I've got this condition and I'm sort of losing my eyesight. So um, I'm a really slow reader. So I had to jump to the audio as well. And it's brilliant that you actually narrate it as well. I love, you know, I listen to a lot. Well, I say I listen to it. You know, I listen more to audio books than I read books. Me too. Um, and, it's, and it's just fantastic. Oh, okay. Okay. So it's just fantastic when the author reads it themselves. It gives a, yeah, a whole level. If, whole they're, a, level. if they're a good reader. Right, you know, there's. <laughs> well, you know, I, even so, sometimes I like it when they, you know, it adds a bit of authenticity to to what to their words, even if they're not necessarily the best. Although well, you were very good. Clearly. Thank you. I, <laughs> I I put a lot of work into that appearance, into that uh, audio, and I really love it, and I get a lot of really good compliments about it. So I'm happy that you enjoyed it, and I appreciate a host who's actually informed about the work. And uh, oh, it's a pleasure. Yeah. You know, and talking yeah, about eyesight, great. you know, eyesight, you don't have control over your eyesight. That's that's circumstances, right? That's your yeah. own personal circumstances. However, I don't know what your condition is, but I just had an operation on my eyes. I used oh, to have right. to wear glasses to be able to see my computer screen or to I've read seen my you wear phone. Glasses. And now I don't wear the glasses anymore because my ophthalmologist scooped out my lenses of my eyes and replaced them with latex lenses. So I have basically had cataract surgery, but when you don't have cataracts, they call it premium lens replacement. And here I am one week later. One uh, week later. Oh my goodness, you're doing amazing. Yeah. Goodness, I know some of my colleagues, they've had uh, you know surgery on their eyes and you know, it's, it's, it's tough. They, they were off work for ages. This, so I'm so grateful that you're joining me after such a short time. Hey, the operation. this is, you know, I'm, I'm really a believer in this operation. You know, my eyes hurt a little and the ophthalmologist sure. explained that the reason my eyes hurt, see what they do is 
they cut a two millimeter slit in the eyeball and they go in and they freeze the crystalline lens of your eye until it shatters. And you and I oh actually saw all the little shat, all the like shatter marks in my eye. And then it became just light. You know, I could see the light, but I couldn't focus on anything because I had no more lens in my eye. Right. And then they inserted the plastic latex new lens into my eye. And he says the reason why my eyes hurt is because the muscle of my eye, which used to make the natural crystalline lens tighter or looser in order to focus it, has to get used to not focusing the lens. Oh, right. So they're getting used to it, used having to get used to working without less. any assistance. Yeah. Yeah. Less. Yeah. 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 So that's why he says that's a Eyes hurt. We, I just just want to say, you, anyone out there who's looking to have a similar operation, you, ensure you seek proper medical care. To you know, do do as Clint, you know, has done and 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 has uh, gone to the best in the business to do this surgery. I, I went to the best in Acapulco, okay, <laughs> in Mexico, in Acapulco, Mexico, and I, I was having <laughs> dinner with this lady here in my neighborhood. I I now am living for the most part in the nicest neighborhood in Acapulco, Mexico. So, you know, our house manager who manages a lot of these mansions, she introduced us to some lady who invited us over for dinner. She's in the oil business from Texas, right? And he had the same operation 10, 15 years ago. And and she's like, oh, I, I, you definitely do it. I'm like, well, I'm doing it here in Acapulco. She goes, well, I don't know about all that. <laughs> <laughs> but that's great that it's worked out. Oh, I'm very happy that it worked out. I really that's am. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. I'm really pleased. Um, so before we get started, I, I just wanted to put on record um, the most famous person that I've ever met. Um, so that was um, the former prime minister, a guy called John Major. Yeah, he was like prime minister in the nineties. Nice. I mean, I say, I, I say, I met him. I walked past him in the airport. Um, so that that's sort of <laughs> what constitutes. So I just wanted to offer some context as to, as to what a normal person's experience is of meeting high profile individuals before we before we get into. Well, did you get a picture great... with him? Did you say hello? I did. Oh, that's it. I needed to have known what you were. Yeah, that was, that was, no, I didn't, unfortunately. Okay, well, let me give you the secret. Let me give you the secret. This is how you do it. You say, hey, John Majors, can I get a quick selfie? (laughs) You might want to insert, you you might want to insert, hey, John Majors, I'm a huge fan. I voted for you. Can I get a quick selfie, please? That's, that's what you say. I've heard you say when you, when you had a picture of uh, George, George Bush, Bush, yeah, you, you, uh, you had a camera in your pocket, so this was before kind of selfies, quote unquote, were a thing. Yeah, and, uh, I, I took a said, seminar. Hey, I took Mr. a President, seminar with uh, Mark Victor Hansen, one of the empresarios who created the Chicken Soup for the Soul series of books, and he recommended in that seminar you should always carry around an uh, Instamatic camera in your pocket. Because you never know if you meet somebody famous or special, you want to get a photo with them. And, you know, this is before iPhones. This is before phones had cameras on them as a matter of everyday experience. And I just so happened, you know, this was like maybe a year or two later, I had the camera in my pocket. 
and he I was it was a Sunday morning at 11 a.m. and I was on a business visit to one of my chef clients and friends at the Wynn Resort in Las Vegas. And he was the executive chef of this big French brasserie there called the Danielle Boulou Brasserie. And he's like, he's got, you know, those little wands where you take it and you put it into your glass and you can whip up a glass of chocolate milk or turn ice and and milk into a smoothie. Well, he's got oh, one the size of a baseball bat and he's stirring a giant, cu- a giant pot of lobster bisque. And I go, Philippe, man, you got 20 sous chefs working for you. Why don't you have one of those guys mixing this thing up instead of you doing this on a Sunday morning at 11 a.m.? He goes, because this is my métier. I love it. Right? <laughs> and, and just then, I, out of the corner of my eye, I see movement. And I look, and there's these two guys in suits and ties and another guy in a suit and tie. And the first two were Secret Service guys. And the third one was George H.W. Bush. And I go, holy shit, that's the president <laughs> of the United States. And Philippe goes, really? <laughs> he had no idea. And then I just – I go running out into the dining room after, after George Bush and there he is looking at the lake. It's a beautiful man-made artificial lake in the middle of the desert in Las Vegas and he's admiring it. And I go to the Secret Service guy. I didn't even have the courage to go up to George Bush directly. I go up to the Secret Service guy and I go, can I get a picture with the president? Sure. I hand him the camera and I go up to the president and I say, sir, I voted for you. Thank you. <laughs> now, you know, I, I realized I did vote for him, but not for president. I voted for him when he, oh, was, running, you did. When he right. was running for vice president with Ronald Reagan. I voted for him, but I oh, did shit. not vote in the election when he was running to be the president. And, yeah. and then after the photo, I, and I go, can I, you know, can we take the photo? Sure. I, after the photo, I go, what's the most important thing you ever learned? And he said, well, young man, that's a very big question, but I have to say, you have to keep doing the things you love in life. And in the photo of me and George Bush in this book, I don't know, I don't know exactly where it is. And like, it's hard for me to, this is a big book. It's yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Three hundred and something pages long. I only know books in hours, so it's nine hours long. Yeah, it's nine oh, hours. Great. Here's me and and Joe Biden. Okay, so trust me, it's in here. So yeah. in the picture of me and George Bush in the book, you can see on his necktie he's got little parachute jumpers on the necktie, and he very famously would jump out of airplanes with parachutes on his birthday. That's him doing what he loves. And, uh, you know, yeah, a lot yeah, of people yeah. are like, oh, I don't like the, his politics or Clinton. You know, I've met Clinton, him, Jimmy Carter, Joe Biden and Donald Trump. I don't care what you think about any of their politics. This is not a politics book. This is a yeah. book about the smartest stuff that I learned from the most successful people in the world. The people who everybody admires, who men want to be like and women want to be with. That's the that's the men <laughs> That are in yeah. this book, and and I ask almost every single one of them, "What's the most important thing you ever learned?" And that's what's in this book. Yeah, your your book is is absolutely chock full of you know stories like that. You know, it's it's really really incredible. Just one after the other, you you you're knocking them out. And so, and I'm worried I'm not going to get through the questions I was hoping to ask, but but I'll do my best. I mean, 
as I said, you've had you know such an um, such an amazing life. Some of the some of the experiences you've had, um, and it was quite tricky picking sort of the questions um, that I was hoping to ask. Um, so I was going to dive straight into your time working in Hollywood. Um, you know, I know this wasn't an easy time for you, um, and so I was interested as to what made you to de- decide to move to Hollywood. You know, what were you hoping to achieve, and and kind of what was it really like? What was you know for for somebody who may not know that much about Hollywood? When I was a little kid, I always wanted to be special, and the way I decided I was going to become special was I was going to go to the best business school in the world. What did I know? You know, I didn't know anything. I didn't, I really didn't even know about money when I was growing up. I didn't know we didn't have any money. I didn't know that. I worked all the time in a cafe. I used to make $200 every weekend. And for a kid in high school in the 1970s, that was a lot of money. But compared to the people I was going to meet, you know, one of my fraternity brothers is the CEO of Omaha Steaks. His family has owned that business for five generations. It's like almost a billion dollar sales company. Another one of my, I know three of my fraternity brothers who have become billionaires with a B. And many, many, many of them are millionaires or came from families who had lots of money. And one of those families who seemed to have a lot of money until I got to know him was the kid I hated the most in my fraternity. Uh, His name was Evan Copelson. And I hated him because I wanted to become somebody and seemingly all he wanted to do was smoke pot and watch soap operas. That's all he wanted to do when he was in college. And after college was over, I go back home to get the attaboys from my parents because I just graduated from the greatest business school in the world with a 4.0 GPA in entrepreneurship. And what happens? They get into the biggest argument of all time. My, my dad storms out of the house and slams the door. I turn to my mom and go, you know, mom, the way he resents you all these years, have you been cheating on dad? And I'm wow. thinking, holy cow, where did that question come from? I never even thought that idea before in my whole life. Then I'm thinking, well, what kind of a rude... Son of a gun asks his own mom a question like that. That's probably the rudest thing I've ever said to anybody. And then I said, how come she's not answering the question? And then she goes, he's not your real father. Your real father was a doctor at the fertility clinic we went to for six years trying to have you. And you look just like that guy. Say what? (laughs) Oh, my. Oh, my. So now I didn't know who I was anymore. You know, you don't know how much of your own self-identity is based on the foundation of thinking you know who your daddy is. Absolutely. So I sure as heck heck didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up anymore. So I call up the investment bank on the 87th floor of number one World Trade Center. Uh, Mr. Vice President, I appreciate the offer, but I've decided I don't want to be an investment banker anymore, even though that's what every single graduate of the Wharton Business School has been aspiring to do all four years of their lives. And I have the the dream offer. I'm not going to do that. And what did I do? I naturally moved out to Hollywood because <laughs> I, you know, most people go to Hollywood to lose themselves. I wanted to discover who was I. And really, that, that was a smart thing that I did because the main goal of every single movie is the question, who am I? Every movie, every novel is all about that one question, who am I? What? And it's, it's a fascinating thing. So I started going on auditions and 
writing screenplays. I wrote 30 screenplays over the course of 13 years. And uh, in Hollywood. Yeah, and, and that's what this was all about. Now, when I was there, I ran into one of my buddies from junior high school. You might have heard of him. Uh, he's done a few movies like Sherlock Holmes, uh, Iron Man, Robert Downey Jr., <laughs> right? Yeah. He and I went to eighth grade together. And when we were in eighth grade, we went to go see a movie in Greenwich Village. And after the movie, we go to get a falafel sandwich. And on the way to the falafel shop, he jumps into a candy store and comes out and has a brand new pack of Marlboro cigarettes, lights up a Marlboro Red, takes a puff, and then he takes the pack and crushes it in his hand and throws it on a pile of garbage. And I'm like, what? And he goes, I just wanted one. <laughs> That's a good line. I like it. Hey, it shows and, that he had a lot of willpower and self-control, right? Yeah. And this is this is where, where I really wanted to get to because, you know, I had a lot of willpower and self-control until the end of my sophomore year in college when I was living with Evan Copelson. Yeah. And he would say to me almost every day, have a bong hit. Go on. Have a, just <laughs> one. Just one. And I didn't have any for all that time. But in the spring... I had a bong hit and I really didn't, you know, I, I would occasionally have a uh, smoke some pot throughout my, co my college years as a junior or a senior, but really hardly ever because I really didn't like it. But then after college, after college, I was living with my girlfriend in Los Angeles and she was friends with this kid who I also hated even more than Evan who was a bigger waste case and a bigger drug user in college than even Evan. But she liked this guy, Eric, and we would go over to his house and he would smoke me out to the kindest kind buds of, all, of them all. He had amazing pot and yeah. great wine. And you, <laughs> oh, and you man, talk that's... about circumstances, you know, circumstances that change you. Well, yeah. I never really thought I was a pot smoker until... Until, you know, I was friends with him now for many, mm. many, after college, for many, many years, I was friends with that guy. I would go have dinner with him probably twice a month to go smoke his pot. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it only occurred to me in 2009, on December 14, I went to a weight loss retreat. It was a raw vegan retreat. And one of the rules was no drugs, no alcohol. So I stopped smoking pot, I stopped drinking wine, and I stopped drinking alcohol. I was sober for two weeks, and at the end, I lost 13 pounds, and I went back to drinking wine, but I did not smoke pot anymore. And about a year and a half later, I was building a, a, a little loft complex. I have three lofts in a store in Silver Lake, California, which is part of Los Angeles. And across the street from that development is a little cafe where they have a lot of 12-step meetings. And I was walking by the room and I'm like curious. So I poked my head in. There was a meeting about to start. I sit down. Everybody's going, my name's Joe and I'm, I'm an addict. My name's Mary and I'm an addict. And it comes to be my turn. And I thought about it. Now, there's this thing called the Johns Hopkins questions that most people know about in terms of alcohol. You know, you ask yourself yeah. these questions. One, yes, maybe you have a problem. Two, yes is likely. Three yeses, you probably have a problem or an issue or you're an alcoholic. And for alcohol, I could never get the third yes. Do you drink every day? Yes. Do you drink at the same time every day? Yes. Do 
but I couldn't get the third yes of all the questions. But as I'm sitting there, I'm thinking about marijuana. Do you smoke every day? Yes. Do you smoke at the same time? Mm. Yes. Third question. Do you associate with a lower class of people as a result of your addiction? And this kid, Eric, when he was in college with me, he applied to become a brother in my fraternity. And I personally stood up in the meeting and I said, no way, blackball. I blackballed him the fraternity. Means oh. He's out. I, there's yeah, no way right. he can be in. Anybody can do that to any applicant. And I blackballed him out because I thought he was, a t- you know, not the right kind of person to have in our fraternity, which was devoted to the highest moral, intellectual, and social excellence. And here I am hanging out with him for years and years and years to smoke his pot. I realized that's my third yes. And I said, hey, my name is Clint and I'm an addict. And I've never said that before, but I realized today that it's true. And everyone stood up and gave me a standing ovation. And that's the first standing ovation I ever got in my life. I haven't gotten very many of them, honestly. <laughs> but that was a real that's one. Fan- yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, during during that time you were working in Hollywood for 13 years, you were, you were, you know, you were driving a, a cab to sort of help supplement your income no no Um, not to supplement my income i was surviving (laughs) okay i was living on a subsistence income i would make 500 dollars driving a cab about 35 hours during a weekend i'd start at five o'clock on a friday and i would turn the cab back in on sunday at five o'clock and during those two days of having the car i would drive it 32 to 35 hours and make 500 bucks every week thereabouts and it was really you know it's really tough hearing about some of because you were you were renting a cab as well you were you know you were driving illegally as a taxi can i say that yeah i i was in i was a pirate taxi what i yeah. what happened was was i would when i was driving a taxi like you know the, the one of the things that i hate in the world the most is what's called the uh, los angeles international airport taxi cab authority they administrate the taxis what does that mean that means they charge every person getting in a cab $5 that goes to this administration fund and what they right. do with that money i have no freaking clue but it just makes all ubers and all taxis $5 more expensive for what but as a taxi driver, you have to follow their instructions and they dispatch you to one of the many stands around the airport and you have to wait there for people to come to the cab. And as I'm sitting there waiting for people to get in my cab, a lot of times I would see a limousine pull up between my stand and the next stand and people would get in that limo and drive away. And I figured out that that guy was picking off people who were going to the taxi line. So what I would do, oh. I came up with this great idea. It was it was $82 a day to rent a, a yellow cab, but it was $85 a day to rent a brand new Cadillac Sedan DeVille. And now I had air conditioning. I was getting better gas mileage. I had a real stereo in the car. Usually when I would drive a cab, I would bring a little transistor radio. I would tuck it into the door handle so I'd have some music because there's never any music in a cab because these are converted police cruisers. So they don't have music radios in there. But here I'm driving around in luxury and then I would go to the airport and go in between the stands and say, hey, where do you need to go? Same price as a taxi. And they'd look at my brand new Sedan DeVille 
and compare it to these clunky old yellow caps and I would get – I started making like $600. I, I would make I would make $600 a weekend doing that and living in good style versus yeah. versus driving a cab. The only problem is one night after about six months of that, I'm driving this couple out of the airport and I look in my rearview mirror and there's – flashing lights blue and red and i get pulled over and next thing i know i'm handcuffed over the trunk of the car and i'm going to jail and it's two o'clock in the morning and i'm in jail in los angeles and my bail is one thousand dollars and i don't have that kind of money and i don't know anybody who has that kind of money and i end up calling the only person who i thought might have that kind of money that was my ex-brother-in-law my my daughter's mother had just thrown me out of the house, I don't know, maybe a year earlier. We'd split up. And here I am. And I call him. It's, it's like 2 o'clock in the morning. And I go, and I thought he would be up surfing the internet or watching TV. He answers the phone. I go, he goes, hello? I go, Chris, it's me, Clint. He goes, Clint, it's 2 o'clock in the morning. I go, <laughs> Clint, I go, Chris, I'm in jail. I, I need $1,000 bail. He goes, what? What did you do? I said, I was driving an illegal taxi at the airport. He goes, what the hell is that? <laughs> <laughs> I, when I read that, I was like, yeah, can you, is that illegal to drive people around for money? But yeah, maybe, you know, maybe in the UK we have those sort of laws as well. But it is yeah, illegal. that is such a great question to ask you. <laughs> what the hell is that? You know, <laughs> what the hell is that? What do you mean? What, what are you talking about? It's like, you know, why, what? How, how the hell did you do how that? How did you get busted for that? How, yeah, yeah. yeah, how did you get busted for that? How did you even come up with that? You know, yeah, I, yeah. man, there's a book I want to write. Well, I, I don't know if I'll ever write it, but it was about that guy. See, that guy, he had a limo. The guy. Oh, right. The, right? Yeah, they inspired you. That guy, I got to be friends with that guy. He handed me his business card one day. You know what it said? It said, the king of LAX. <laughs> feels like yeah like um fresh prince i can't remember jay-z yeah i think he he sort of used to drive people to the uh the airport did he really well this guy i think was, so i maybe this, this yeah. guy had a had a town car and he was the king of lax man <laughs> man oh man oh man those were some days <laughs> And <laughs> I mean, I I don't want to focus too much on your time at Hollywood. There were so many, um, so many things I wanted to ask you about. So, okay, let me. Um, I just wanted to. Uh, okay, you 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 kind of had a, a sort of a, a mini breakthrough at one point when you were young. Uh, one of your roommates' fathers, who is a huge Hollywood producer, offered you some work on his film Firebird, uh, which starred Nicolas Cage and Tommy Lee Jones. And, you know, it was after that that, that um, it, I think you started then, you know, it was sort of after that time you actually started driving a cab, even though you sort of had that great opportunity. Um, but even that person who won, you know, that he went on to produce Platoon and he, and he won an Oscar for it. But, but that person was in quite a lot of debt themselves. Is that right? Yeah, that, that, was, that was Evan... My roommate Evan's father, yeah. and 
you know, after college, I started dating the sister. And once I started dating the sister, next thing I know, I get a call from the father. Hey, I want you to come and work on one of my movies. I'm like, okay. So I go work on the movie. You know, Ev never had any money in college. Ev never Mm -hmm. had any money in college. And I said, how come you don't have any money? You come from Beverly Hills, 90210. Your dad produced this movie. At that time, his movie was called Porky's. It was the mm. fifth highest grossing movie of 1982. And then he produced Platoon and he made a lot of money. But when I was living with Ev and when he was in college, he never had any money because his dad had been the president of a bank and was partners with Johnny Carson. And the bank went out of business and he got stuck with $6 million of debt. So even though <laughs> Ev was in college, he wasn't on financial aid. I said, how come you don't get financial aid like me? I was on financial aid. 50% of my college was paid for from financial aid. He goes, well, it doesn't look cool. You gotta, we got to look cool. I go visit him in California. He picks me up in a BMW convertible. I'm like, how do you have a BMW convertible when your dad has $6 million in debt? He goes, we got to look good. And later that week, he took me to the screening of Platoon. And it was a big deal. I remember... We went to this screening in Century City, which is adjacent to Beverly Hills, high-end screening room, and the reviewer for Time Magazine was in the audience. And Arnold Copelson, the father, the producer mm. of these movies, he produced not just Platoon, but Falling Down with Michael Douglas, The Fugitive with Harrison Ford, The Devil's Advocate with Al Pacino and Keanu Reeves, a little movie called Seven with Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman, a hundred million dollar film called Eraser for Warner Brothers starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. He became the king of Hollywood. But at this point, he was like my age, right, that I am right mm. now, maybe a little younger than me. He had six million dollars in debt. The movie reviewer from Time magazine came to see Platoon and he's wearing a suit and tie in the screening in this screening room. And we ride the elevator down to the garage and I'm like, wow. Man, I have always loved army movies. That was the greatest movie I've ever seen, that platoon, man. He's like, really? You think so, really? I'm like, yeah, (laughs) I really do. (laughs) (laughs) But did it it make you, even at that sort of tender age when you saw him with, you know, achieving these amazing things and thinking, oh, he's in debt. I mean, did you know he was kind of in debt? And did you sort of, you know, reconsider your own path in Hollywood as a result? You know, like I said, I didn't understand anything about money. I really didn't. Mm -hmm. Even though I graduated Mm -hmm. from the Wharton Business School, I didn't understand. Money was just like an idea. It wasn't real to me because I – yeah. I always had enough money to do anything I wanted. I, the things that I, that I wanted to do never were about money. And you know, that's really interesting because like people who say, well, I'm in, the fun, I'm, in the, I'm in the raising portion of my business. I'm trying to I'm, – I'm in a startup. I'm trying to raise funds. Yeah. I've, I've started a lot of businesses. I've never needed money to do anything. Everything I've always done has been – from my mind, you know, it's been ingenuity, which has created the business, even my gourmet food business. After I got out of Hollywood, I, you know, like after 13 years of chasing the Hollywood dream and not making money and putting everything on credit cards and having run out, like I had, I had, you know, like a hundred thousand dollars worth of credit. I thought that was like the most amount of money. How could I ever possibly go through all that? Well, I did. And 
and when you don't have any more credit and, and the bills just keep mounting up and getting higher and higher, it becomes, it starts to become real. And I got to the point where I just wanted to have a real life and I got into the gourmet food sales business. And even that, I started that with $200, you know? Yeah. So, you know, everything I've done is not needed money, but I, it never occurred to me. See, you talk about circumstances. I met him. Here he is. Next thing I know, he's on television winning the Academy Award. Next, you know, yeah. we go to London. Uh, we go we go to um, Rome. Me and Ev, we're uh, like, I'm getting my last two credits for college and, in uh, Penn in Florence, Italy. And Ev says, hey, we're going to go down to Rome and see my parents there. They're getting an award. And he's getting the Italian Academy Award for Best Foreign Film for Platoon. And I'm sitting next to Marley Maitland at the dinner. And she just won an Academy Award for Children of a Lesser God with William Hurt. And, like, it just seemed like one day I would be getting an Academy Award. It really, yeah. it really seemed like it was possible. Because I had never known failure in my life. I had never known any kind of obstacles or difficulty everything i did i worked my ass off and i got it mm. i made it happen but i couldn't make this happen i all i could i couldn't get arrested in hollywood except for the dui uh and, so not the cab related incident and the cab related incident exactly. oh and the, <laughs> yeah i mean Clint, there was there were so many questions. I was I was wondering, you know, there might have to be some time a part two to to our discussion uh, because it was it was incredible. I mean, just to just to say, you know, as a as a again a little bit of a spoiler, you as you as you mentioned alluded to, you did leave Hollywood and you actually made you know huge success with the gourmet business. You went into real estate as well, you know, earned a lot of money there. And um, but but your passion is obviously still writing, and you've you know as I've said, you've written twenty one best selling books, and you've got uh, a Pulitzer nominated book as well in uh, Wisdom of the Men. So you know you can check out Clint Arthur on um, you know if you if you uh, on Amazon, just you know just type his name in, and you'll get all his books come up, or you can just uh, Google. Uh, wisdom of the men straight away and you're and it will pop straight up so um but thank you so so much clint i'm i i'm gutted that you weren't able to talk for longer hey it's been a lot of fun thanks for having me on and um good luck with your eye <laughs> good luck with your eye <laughs> thanks thanks clint yeah you too you too take care okay ciao